You turn in your Bibles to John 6, verses 16 through 21. If you're not there, that'll be our passage this morning, as, as I've said, and you've probably seen in the bulletin. This is the familiar story of Jesus walking on the water. In this passage, Jesus meets his disciples while out at sea and, of course, in the midst of a storm. I believe this passage will give comfort to those who are out to sea, out at sea and in the midst of a storm. That's kind of our goal this morning. What does it mean to be out at sea? What do I mean by that? What does it look like to be in the midst of a storm? You can probably fill in the blank. You've lived long enough to experience such things. A serious or a chronic health concern. Uh, The rebellion of a wayward child. The depression, despondency that makes Jesus seem meaningless, or maybe the loss of a loved one. When we're out at sea, it's what we know about our Lord that carries us through, that is, knowledge. This is why our understanding of spiritual things is so important. When our hearts are strengthened with the truths about God, about God's character and his sovereignty, will not lose our way. If we're familiar with the various ways God has brought comfort and deliverance to the saints, to fellow believers that have gone before us, well, I think we'll find shelter from the storm. That being said, when we're out to sea, grief, despair, or pain can hinder our ability to grasp these truths. It's hard to see them. In fact, sometimes theological truths, truths about the Bible and uh, what God is doing, even come to us uh, as a trouble sometimes, or you might say they're unhelpful or insensitive. When speaking to someone about the loss of a loved one, it's unhelpful to say, well, at least they're in a better place. A couple years ago, I lost a good friend of mine somewhat unexpectedly, and While the man was a spiritual mentor to me, he was a strong believer and no doubt he was in heaven, I wanted him here. I wanted to share a meal with him. I wanted to learn from him. I wanted to walk through life and have him help me to know what it looks like to persevere in my faith. He was gone. What we often need when we're out at sea is simply someone to mourn with us. We need a hand to hold. We need to be surrounded by people who will grieve with us, cry with us. That being said, our emotions, they're like breathing. They expand and contract. And we might have minutes, we might have days when the waves of despair are constantly crashing in. And in a moment, the waves cease and there's a glassy sea. When the waves are crashing, cliches and platitudes aren't helpful. However, when a calm comes over the sea of pain, we have a window of opportunity. A window of opportunity to strengthen our thinking from spiritual truth, from the Bible. These are the moments where a story or the truth of Scripture can give us the strength to persevere. If you find yourself out at sea... It's my hope that this morning there might be some comfort. There might be a window of opportunity 
to hear from the Lord, not as a cliche or a platitude, but as a comfort. We should note the fact that Scripture does not come to us as a textbook. You can't go to the back of your Bible and look up pain and suffering and you know, it'll, it'll bring us to a place. It's not really how the Bible works, and you, you know that. The Bible is not a systematic theology. It's not a theological essay. It's really, the Bible is God's storybook. It's a storybook about the grace and deliverance offered to us, to God's people. And it's a storybook that demonstrates over and over that God wants to bring comfort to those out at sea. Therefore, my big idea this morning is very simple. Jesus brings comfort to those out at sea. And with that, if you would, please stand for the reading of our passage, John 6, verses 16 through 21. It's a short passage. John 6, verses 16 through 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea being rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. As I've said, the big idea this morning is this. Jesus brings comfort to those out at sea. In our study last week, if you were with us, Jesus fed the 5,000. Actually, Jesus, as you know, Jesus fed a lot more than 5,000, counting women and children. He probably fed some, something like 20,000 people. He did this using the lunch of a little boy, five barley loaves and two fish. The miracle was the fourth recorded in the Gospel of John, and the miracle sets up the rest of the chapter. John uses the miracle to set up a speech from Jesus. Uh, You can probably see the title in your Bible there, I am the bread of life. The rest of this chapter is is that speech, and it's in that speech that Jesus will say, I am the bread of life. However, between the feeding of the 5,000 and that speech, John records another sign. It's the one that we've just read, Jesus walking on the water. Now, I have to admit that if I were putting together this gospel, placing uh, this miracle, the record of this miracle, at this point, it seems a little awkward. Why put it here? But... Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and as the events occurred, the Lord wanted this fifth sign right here between the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus' declaration that he is the bread of life. Why? What are the reasons for this? Why would God put this miracle here in the Bible? The Bible doesn't tell us, so any reason we come up with is somewhat conjecture. It's It's an estimated guess, you might say. I'm tempted to think that this miracle was needed to, you might say, strengthen the disciples' faith and to help them see, as we're going to see this morning, that comfort comes from Jesus. We are given an interesting detail in Mark's gospel. Mark also gives us a story. Mark says in chapter 6, verse 52, the disciples 
did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. It's an interesting detail. Mark says this after recording the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. As much as these men saw and heard, as much as we've kind of seen already, even in our study of John, the water into wine, the healing of the nobleman's son, the healing of the paralyzed man, the feeding of the 5,000, and John also says that Jesus healed many other sick people up to this point. All these miracles they had seen, yet their hearts were still hardened. There was still far to go, somewhere else to go in their faith. They had a lukewarm faith, you might say. Look for a moment, the end of this chapter, John 6, 66. John 6, verse 66 says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Of course, we're going to see that in the speech that Jesus gives, he says some very hard things. So many walked away. So Jesus said to the 12, in verse 67 there, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They'd come to know this. Well, how? What would it take for the disciples to come to know and to, to come to this point of belief that they would confess this? Well, I think as John gives us the story, it would take a miraculous miracle, namely Jesus walking on the water in order for their faith to kind of come all the way. As our story begins, we learn what it's like first when Jesus is far from us. This is in verses 16 through 18, what it's like when Jesus is far from us. Recall where the story of the feeding of the 5,000 ended. Verse 15 tells us that Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. You remember that's where we ended last week. As the crowds tried to take Jesus by force and, take, and make him king, Jesus and the disciples separated. Jesus fled to the mountain, and Matthew tells us the disciples were commanded by Jesus to get into the boat and go ahead of him. I'm not sure if Jesus shoved them off and then went off to the mountain, but the scene was probably quite intense. Again, 20, 000, a crowd of 20,000 people trying to grab him and take him by force and make him king. And it was getting dark. You can imagine this was a pretty intense situation. Recall also from last week that they were in the east side, they were on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. So they're moving west on the water with the bow of the boat pointed towards Capernaum. Now, if you started off near Bethsaida, which we think maybe they were, we're not sure exactly, a straight shot to Capernaum would have been about three or four miles to land on the other side of the water. We should also remember that these men are not experienced, not inexperienced, excuse me, at least four of these men were fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. I don't know if you've spent a lot of time on a boat. When I was a kid, we had a boat, and I spent actually a lot of time on a boat with my dad and my family, and it, it always gave me great comfort to know that my dad, who had a lot of experience, uh, that he was with us when the wind would pick up and we would be miles away from the dock, thinking, we have to get back. <laughs> and it was, was a comfort to know that my dad knew how to get us back. And that's what happens to our disciples. Uh, in verse 18, we read, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. 
Now, if you haven't spent a lot of time on the water, you might not understand how quickly the water can become dangerous. Under the cover of night and being sent off by their master, they might not have known that a cool storm was growing just north of the sea. An early American traveler to the Sea of Galilee, he recorded this in his journal. He writes, My experience in this region enabled me to sympathize with the disciples in their long night's contest with the wind. I have seen the face of the lake like a huge boiling cauldron. The wind howled down the valleys from the northeast and east with such fury that no efforts of rowers could have brought a boat to shore at any point along the coast. To understand the causes of these sudden and violent tempests, we must remember the lake lies low, 600 feet lower than the ocean, that watercourses have cut out profound ravines and wild gorges converging to the head of the lake, and that these act like gigantic funnels to draw down the cool winds from the mountains. No wonder the disciples toiled and rowed all that night. He says in another place, Small as the lake is and placid in general as a molten mirror, I have repeatedly seen it quiver and leap and boil like a cauldron when driven by fierce winds. In our passage, the disciples find themselves in such a boiling cauldron. I enjoy the way an old preacher described the scene. He writes, Peter, no doubt, took command. And I'm sure that he did, the preacher says. And you can see him there holding the tiller with his stalwart arm, his strong arm, and his beard anointed with the foam of the sea. In a stentorian tone or in a loud voice, he commands the disciples to trim the ship, lower the sails, and take to the oars. Where all was calm a little while ago, now all is tumult and confusion. As the tempest rages over the lake, the ship tosses like a cork up and down in the great waves, the white foam of the gray rollers gleaming in the blackness of the night like the teeth of some monster of the sea. All of this, and they are without their master, verse 17 says, Jesus had not yet come to them. As I can tell, there are two ways to encounter a storm. One is to flee God. Remember how that went for Jonah. Didn't go well. That's not the situation the disciples are in, however. They were out at sea and in the midst of the storm precisely because they obeyed God. And if we're familiar with God's storybook, we know that God's people will face contrary winds. Moses wouldn't have encountered constant rejection and opposition from God's people had he walked away from the burning bush. Daniel could have avoided the lion's den had he disobeyed God's voice. Consider all the apostle Paul had to endure for the sake of Christ. It's tempting to think that God has forsaken us when we're out to sea. Kent Hughes writes, In this dark age, things can be so obscured by the secular winds of life and its problems that it looks as if Jesus has forgotten us. But he has not. Even this week, we have news of another school shooting on Monday. Even at a Christian school, in a moment, six people, their lives gone. Life is a vapor. When our trials try to convince us that God has forgotten us, 
we have to cling to the fact that Jesus knows, Jesus cares, and he will come to our aid. The words of Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10, are helpful. Where shall I go from your spirit, writes the psalmist? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, he says, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. What is he saying? God is near. When we're out to sea, it's easy to think he's forgotten us. But he has not. Jesus shoved these men off knowing knowing that they would encounter a storm. He knew about their toiling and their striving. Yet, up to this point, verse 17 again, Jesus had not yet come to them. John doesn't tell us why Jesus delayed. Doesn't say that. That being said, the Bible does suggest in many places that God, it is God's character to delay God does delay. Psalm 130, verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. Psalm 33, 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In Acts 1, 4, you remember, after the resurrection, Jesus commanded the disciples to wait for what the Father had promised. That was the coming of the Holy Spirit. They were to wait. In our day, what are we doing? <laughs> we're waiting. <laughs> we're waiting for the Lord to return. First Thessalonians 1.10 says that believers wait for his Son from heaven. Why all this waiting on our part and why all the delaying on God's part? Well, I think there's a clue. Psalm 37, verses 4 through 7, says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Listen to this. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Don't worry about those things. Wait patiently and delight yourself in the Lord, is what this psalm says. Here's at least one reason why God delays. To teach us that knowing him is our greatest good. I know it seems counterintuitive, but God uses distance to grow our delight in him. When we're out at sea and all alone, we have a choice to make. Delight in the world or delight in the Lord. Seek worldly wisdom or seek wisdom from above. Perhaps God delays to bring us to the end of our strength. I know that's painful. To bring us to the very end of our strength so that's all that's left is to rely on him. 
seems to be Paul's experience. He writes in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 10. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Why? Listen to what Paul says. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul said it right there. God extended out that suffering. So Paul was at the point of death. Take us, Lord. Not another ounce of this. Why? So that Paul would rely on him to trust the one who raises the dead. And then he says, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us on him on him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. When you and I are out to sea, when we're out to sea, and the longing and the despair and the grief and the loss and the pain and the fear, God desires that we not rely on ourselves, but on the one who raises the dead. God wants us to rely on him because he gives comfort to those out at sea. So we've seen what it's like when Jesus is far from us, Let's look at verses 19 and 20 where we'll learn what it's like when Jesus is near to us. Verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. In such a storm, we can imagine the men were blown off course. While three or four miles might have almost taken them to Capernaum in a straight shot on a calm sea, the storm likely pushed them south. And so Matthew says the boat was a long way from the land, probably somewhere in the middle of this sea. Matthew and Mark both tell us that it was the fourth watch, which means it was sometime between 3 and 6 a.m. Therefore, the men would have been fighting the storm for some time, and it would have been the darkest part of the night. John says, that Jesus, uh, John says that Jesus was walking on the water. They saw him walking on the water. Lenski writes, When trying to imagine Jesus walking on the sea, we must not overlook the storm and the raging waves. I don't know if you've seen it this way in your head. These howled and dashed about him, but they did not affect him in the least. He was not tossed up and down. Before him, as he moved his feet, a smooth, apparently solid path lay on which he walked as on ordinary ground. We're not surprised that the disciples were frightened. The other gospel writers, writers tell us that they thought he was a ghost. It's a phantom. For all the hours these men spent at sea, all the experience they had, no one had ever seen a man walking on the water. Yet, filled with fright, Jesus offers words of comfort. It is I. Do not be afraid. Arthur Pink writes, Our fears can only be dispelled by looking in faith too and having our hearts occupied with him. He says, Look around and we shall be disheartened. Look within and we shall be discouraged. But look unto him and our fears will vanish. I don't want to be too critical of the disciples. I'm pretty sure if I saw someone walking on the water in the dark of night, I'd probably be pretty, pretty afraid. 
<laughs> that being said, most fear is sinful. And these words from Jesus, do not be afraid, are in line with God's commands for us to not fear. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. Do not fear anything. Do not worry about anything. I know we have our kids here, some of the students that are here with us, opportunity maybe to speak to you briefly this morning. Let me ask you, does this situation, the disciples out at sea, does it seem scary? Would you be frightened if you were out at sea in the middle of a storm and you saw a man walking on the water? I'm guessing you probably would. I know I would be afraid. What are you afraid of? What causes you to fear? Most people, most kids, are afraid of the dark. Are you afraid of the dark? Maybe you're afraid to go upstairs when nobody's upstairs or downstairs when nobody's downstairs. Maybe you're afraid of taking the trash out. It's a frightful thing to do. Maybe you don't like scary movies. I don't like scary movies either. It's probably true that some of these things you'll grow out of. It's probably the case. There are other fears you might grow into. It's common even for adults to fear certain circumstances. Public speaking apparently is one of the greatest fears out there. It's common for people to have fear of the unknown or to fear the future. Well, let me give you some practical advice, if I might, this morning. First, you need to know that God loves you through your trials. He loves you through your uncertainties. Now, I know this does seem a little bit backwards. Why would God allow me to enter a frightening situation? As we've seen with our disciples, that's what we're studying this morning. God allowed these men to enter into a frightening situation. Why would God allow that? You need to know that God is not trying to harm you. He's trying to draw you close to him. He wants you to experience his love and his grace. His faithfulness, faithfulness in the midst of your fears. And that's exactly what the disciples were experiencing. As I said, God allowed them to be lost at sea. In allowing the disciples to be afraid, he was teaching these men to find security in him. You need to understand that God loves you through your fear, your trials, and your uncertainties. Secondly, and here's our challenge, we need to find or place our hope and our expectations in the Lord to give us all that we need. That when we're filled with fear, God will come near us. The best and easiest way to do this, as far as I can tell, Scripture says that his word is a light into our path, is to remember Scripture, is to meditate on Scripture in the midst of those scary moments. And so if you're a kid, if you're an adult, or a kid, and you, you find yourself in a fearful moment, put Scripture in your mind and use that to fight that against that fear. I like Philippians 4.19. I think it's a good one. My God will supply every need. 
I always remember 2 Timothy 1.7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. When you're in those scary moments, you can say that and you can trust that God will be there. He hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. If you have self-control and the power of the Holy Spirit, you can fight against those fears. You can trust the Lord. So you need to understand first that God loves you through your trials. You need to place your hope in the Lord to give you what you need in that moment. And finally, you have to stay committed to obeying Christ's commands. You have to be committed to obedience. Keep moving forward in obedience to Christ. There's a man named Jay Adams who wrote about fear. He wrote a lot about fear, and he says this. He says, God wants you to seek to please him first and to think about the problem of fear second. This is why, speaking of fear or worry, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If you put anything else first, he says, even the desire to rid yourself of terrifying fear, you will discover that you will fail to achieve either goal. God will not take second place even to a legitimate concern to be free of fear. So in summary, when you find yourself in a fearful situation, in a scary situation, when you're afraid, remember this. God has allowed it. God has allowed it. God wants you to look to him and God wants you to be obedient. God has allowed it. God wants you to look to him and God wants you to be obedient. Final thought before we look at the final verse. Don't let your fear tell you what to think about God. Don't let your fear define that. God is good. Even in the midst of your fear, when you're filled with fear, God is good and God loves you, even when the path forward might be scary. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You can trust the man who died for you. So we've seen what it's like when Jesus is far from us, what it's like when Jesus is near to us, and finally we'll see, verse 21, what it's like when Jesus is embraced by us. What, Jesus, what it's like when Jesus is embraced by us. Look at this final verse. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. It's precisely at the moment that Jesus was embraced by the disciples that their situation changed and they found peace. With Jesus in the boat, the storm ceased and miraculously, the boat hit the bank. It's kind of another miracle, a miracle within a miracle. I think it's too much to say that when we embrace Christ, the winds will always cease. That's not true. Very often, Christ is near and the wind continues to howl. What I do believe, what we can say from this, is when we embrace Christ while out at sea, our heart will find a haven. Our fears will be quieted. As Arthur Pink says again, we shall be occupied not with the tempest, but with the master of it. So then, in this passage, we've seen Jesus bring comfort to those out at sea. Like the disciples, we know what it's like when Jesus is far from us. Whether we've failed to reach for him or he's pushed us out 
to see were familiar with the feeling. Now, up to this point, and this message is really for believers. It's for those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've been addressing believers in this, passage, in this message. We should say that there is a worse sea than our trials. And that's the sea, you might say, of unbelief. The sea of not knowing who Christ is. Not trusting in him. For those who have not trusted in Jesus, there is no promise of comfort. These promises are only yours if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have not believed, then there is no promise. There is no hope. There's fear and longing and pain and despair. That's all you have without Christ. If joy is found in your life, well, it's fleeting. It only leads to hopelessness. You go round and around and around. I would tell you that this comfort that we speak of can be yours today. It can be yours. You can have it. The story is true. Jesus walked on the water. Not like Elsa who had to spray, you know, the water and freeze the water to walk on it in Frozen 2. Not like that. And it just came in my head. Jesus actually walked on the water. He didn't have to freeze it to walk on it. He did the miraculous. And he walked on the water. Jesus has the power to calm the storm, the raging storm around you, but also the raging storm in your heart. The Bible is clear that all you have to do is believe. Whatever you think comes next, you don't need to worry about that. That's one of the the greatest things about the Gospel of John. You know John doesn't actually ever use the word repent. It's fascinating. Yes, the Bible talks about repentance. Repentance is necessary to be saved. But, But for a moment, for a flash, as we read through the Scripture and we study John, he doesn't ever use that. His focus is belief. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Just believe and God will will work out the rest of those details. I know it's frightening. What will my friends say? What will I think? What about my job? What about all these experiences? You don't need to worry about any of that. Put your trust in him today. He can calm the storm of your life. I plead with you. Trust him. You know, they say, with great privilege comes great responsibility. Well, we have had a great privilege today. We have heard from the Lord, not my words, but this word. God has spoken. The creator of the universe, he speaks to us in his word. That comes with a great responsibility. Today is the day of salvation. Turn to him and believe. Now in this message, as you know, I've used the experience of the disciples that is being out at sea as a metaphor for a painful situation. That's what I'm doing in this message. I'm using it as a ma- ma- metaphor. But the worst part about being out at sea is feeling like God has abandoned us because we can't see him working. The darkness and the storm and the sea, they cloud our vision of God. But as the disciples learned, God is there. And I think it's safe to say in our day that God has not left us and God never will. And I believe, even now, he's holding your hand. 
Imagine for a moment that you could get into a time machine. God created a time machine or allowed you to get in a time machine and, and blast into the future. Now imagine you could look back upon your trial. It's from such a vantage point that you could see all the good that came from the pain. You could see all the blessings that have come and that you've experienced as a result of that trial. Imagine you could look on that. Is it possible that you might even wish for or welcome those trials? When Jesus comes to the disciples out at sea, John tells us they were glad and took him into the boat. That's how John records it. Matthew, however, gives us just a little bit more. He writes this. And those in the boat worshipped him. They worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Steve Schwartz writes, Ultimately, the most important reaction to pain that you are to have is to worship God. In every moment of your trial, God did exactly the right thing. And he did all things for his glory and for our benefit. The most crucial result of your torment and affliction needs to be that you are a significantly better worshiper of God. Your knees should be worn from prayer. Your face should be dirty from bowing before him. Your eyes should be filled with tears from prayer. Tears, not just at your pain, but at God's immense and awe-inspiring glory. All that the Lord has done in your life is gracious, yes, even sorrow. End quote. You probably know the Apostle John here, as we close. You know the Apostle John wrote also the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. As John closes that book, chapter 21, the second to last chapter in the Bible. God gave John a vision of the future. Of course, there's a lot of visions in that book, but kind of the the last vision of the very, very end. John records what he saw. He says this in Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Man has tamed many things, but to tame the sea? From the days of the disciples to our day, the sea is a place of unrest. I have no idea whether or not John remembered this day upon the Sea of Galilee when he penned those words. It'd be fascinating to know, John, did you think, no more sea? And thinking about the trial that night? I don't know. What I do know is that God has a future day in which neither you nor I will contend with the sea. Amen.